Welcome to A Twist of Fate, a podcast about life's ups and downs and what we take away from them. This show aims to create empathy and connection in our increasingly virtual world. I'm your host, Bea Gutierrez. Thanks for listening. In 2008, Kevin Delaney woke up from a coma with doctors telling his family that he had only about 24 hours left to live. He was 42 years old, active and healthy, and now suddenly in need of an emergency liver transplant. The odds were stacked against him, but by some miracle, a few hours later, they found an organ donor match in Arizona. Kevin was given a second shot at life and now spends it helping teach others how to live life to the fullest. This is Kevin's story. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on my podcast. I'm super excited about this conversation. Absolutely. Great to be here. Great. So, Kevin, would love if we could go back to the day when you had crashed to the floor, you you weren't sure what happened, and then you you moved into a coma. And so could you walk us through that experience? You know, what are the events that took place and what happened when you woke up? Yeah, thanks. It was an interesting period of life. It was, you know, 13 years, 10 months, 12 days ago. I uh, remember life was good. I was strong. I was very active. I was doing a lot of sports. I was very active in martial arts. And then I had a blackout episode that was severe and fascinated doctors. And that started me on a six-month journey that continued to get worse and worse. In the testing that doctors had for me, I ended up going into cardiac arrest. So CPR fixed that, happened again, had a pacemaker surgery. It, they didn't put it in right. Leads ripped out, had to have another pacemaker surgery. Keep moving forward. They were still poking and trying to figure things out. And I didn't feel well on the way to work one day. Went in the, the doctor and they sent me in for an emergency gallbladder surgery and uh, seemed okay. Literally, I was trying to find somebody to pick me up from surgery. I, I literally had just stopped at, on the way to work, was not feeling well. And they said, we got to put you in a surgery right now. And I remember dialing for dollars, sort of like just leaving messages. Uh, I'm going into surgery. Anybody could pick me up in like five hours. And uh, it seemed to go well. I checked out of the hospital. And that night, things started going sideways. Fever spiked. I went into the hospital for observation. And then it went sideways quickly. I I remember feeling in a way I'd never felt before. And I remember being with the doctor and saying, Hey, like I've been through a lot and I've never felt like this. Like what are the chances I'm going to die? And my mom was in the room and she elbows me like, Oh, don't be ridiculous. And the doctor said, well, actually the chances are pretty high. That's about the last thing I remember because from there I went into a coma and continued to go downhill. And then doctors met with my family and said I had about 24 hours to live systems were shutting down, body was just not doing well. And they kind of threw the Hail Mary pass, put me on an organ transplant list. And however that works, you know, within 12 hours, I was at the top of the list. Somebody died in Arizona and I got a transplant that saved my life. But it was a fairly confusing time for me because the next thing I remember was doctors telling me I was at Stanford Hospital when I remember having gone into Good Samaritan Hospital for observation on a gallbladder. And they said, you're good, you know, you're at Stanford you've had a transplant. And, you know, I remember thinking what in God's name is happening. And that was the beginning of a whole new journey. I had no idea I ever needed a transplant, but the recovery process was long and arduous and took a toll. And that was a reset on life. And like I said, it was about 13 years, 10 months, 12 days ago. I look at the beginning of a second chance at life. 
Oh my gosh. That's so fascinating to, and like, even just imagining what you went through waking up and being like, what happened? Where am I? You know, all of this stuff that happened without your consciousness. It's so interesting. And so I'm curious, once you woke up and you had sort of like settled in with your family, like, how did you guys process all of the events that just took place? Like what had happened at home? What role did your family have in all of this as you were sort of like settling back in? Yeah, I remember thinking the staff and doctors, nurses told me we needed to go to a transplant support group. And I thought it was sort of like new hire orientation for a company like, hey, you've joined, you know, Apple, come, we'll tell you how, what it means. So I thought I was going to a meeting with all the other people who had gotten transplants that week and they were going to tell us about life with the transplant. No, I found out Mm -hmm. literally the minute I get in, I realized there's about 60 people in the room and they start going around the room, introducing themselves and they're telling their name how long they've been waiting on the transplant list. And this is a support group for people who hope to get a transplant someday and their life is in the balance. And I was mortified, like, oh my God, you know, I, I didn't know I needed one. I got one in 24 hours. Mm. I already have mine and you've been waiting 10 years and you, oh, and I, I tapped the nurse, like, get me out of here. Like, yeah. I am so uncomfortable. And she said, no, stay, just hang in. And I thought they are going to hate me. Like this guy just somehow, you know, gets to the top of the transplant list. Yeah. But the nurse assured me stay. And I told him, look, I have a transplant already. And I didn't even know I needed one. And they broke into applause and they were super supportive. And I blew my mind how gracious these people were, each hoping to have a second chance at life. But to them, it was hope. They see somebody who it worked out for and they're like, there's hope in that. And so That was a pretty big turning point for me because it was hard. My sister gave me this thing from Winston Churchill. You know, it was just a little plaque. His quote, you know, never, 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 never give up. And probably I've always been a never give up kind of person. But coming out of that, I was pretty beat up. Like if the doctors told me I needed to go back through that again, I'm like, I don't know if I would have signed up for that. But, you know, it was a long five and a half month process away from work, healing and couldn't walk across a room. So certainly huge support of family, friends. I had three kids that were young, just yeah. having them around, you know, so vivid, but it really was a long healing process. But everybody from the people with whom I worked, the neighbors, the doctors, the staff, you know, I went to the doctor like five times a week. I came home with a suitcase of, you know, pills to stay alive. So yeah. most of my time was spent doing really hard, mundane, like stay alive kind of stuff. But, you know. On this side of it, really grateful. In the moment, it was about two months where just constant pain. I sat in a chair and rocked, just pain. But people rose to the occasion and really grateful for all the people that were there. Oh, the the point you made earlier about maybe feeling a sense of guilt, almost like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, like why was I chosen? Why was I given this chance when so many other people have been waiting for so long? Like, how long did you have to wrestle with that? Like, do you feel like that was like the reaction that was maybe even more imminent after you first got out of it and then transitioned to more of the gratitude and the, you know, appreciation of the new life that we're given? How did you kind of like balance both of those at the same time? Yeah. I remember when the doctors told me, you know, yeah, there's a good chance you're going to die. You know, the first thing that crosses my mind is all the events in my kids' lives that I was not going to be around to see. That was so, you know, poignant. 
coming out of that, there was a sense of like, maybe I have a chance to see some of that. But the guilt part was interesting. And I remember I was sharing that with a buddy of mine and he just said, here's the very clear answer. Just make sure that what you do with the rest of your life makes what just happened meaningful. Yeah. And so there it is. There's your task. Don't worry about anything that happened before or, or how you got to the list and why you and what not somebody else. Just make sure that it was a good choice. And so that's been pretty top of mind. And, and then I did turn the corner and I really came to see it as a huge blessing, which took me a while. But I realized I see life very differently. I yeah. have a point of view that it is precious. Mary Oliver is a poet and she has this quote, you know, tell me what is it you will do with your one wild and precious life? You know, that like was the summation of it all. It's like life is fragile. Life is precious. And there's my question. What am I going to do with my one wild and precious life? And I think I came away with a deeper determination to make it matter and to invest in people more than things and stuff. I love that. Yes. And that's that's a great segue because I think, you know, one thing that really stood out to me from when I read your book was your genuine interest that you had in, in bringing this book to life to, to help it serve other people. So you talked about having this unique gift that not everyone has and really wanting for others to benefit from that. And so one of the quotes from your book reads, not everyone will go through a life or death crisis, putting them at risk for missing out on the perspective that comes with almost dying. And so I really was hoping that you could share a little bit more and elaborate, you know, what is the perspective that came with this experience and what changes have you made in your life based on this? Yeah, there was one huge epiphany, sort of like life is fragile, life is precious. But I had probably the great disappointment was I came away believing I have eternal perspective. Like every day now, I will remember how precious and vital life is and the little stuff will never get to me again. And then, you know, six months in the future, you're in traffic and, you know, people are idiots and, you know, you come back and realize perspective is fleeting. And the takeaway I had is you need to choose perspective every day. You don't get to yeah. live off of yesterday's perspective. Hmm. And that was a pretty powerful deal because I thought I could live off of like that great moment of realization for the rest of my life. And it's like, no, nope. plenty of people have great things happen in their life and it fades. And so part of rewriting the book was to you know, pass on to my kids and let them know the journey. Part of it was to help people who never have the life or death perspective and say, hey, flashing warning signs, life is fragile and precious. Here's some ideas on meaning and purpose. And the third was for myself. It was to write it down so that if the perspective ever started to fade, I could ground myself and come back and go, remember this perspective is valuable only if you keep it top of mind. And so those were the three big takeaways. I'm very intentional. I think very disciplined person. You know, I journaled every day for 15 years until I went into the coma. Like I was that kind of person. And yeah. I've realized that there's beauty in routine that can, that can help with so many parts of life. But there's a danger in routine. We seek comfort. We seek routine. And, you know, the old quote, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> I've come to realize we need to get out of our comfort zone into some of the discomfort. And so yeah. one of the clear takeaways for me in living is living is an action. It's a to-do. You have to be doing things. And second is you need to be doing things you've never done. You need to be going places you've never gone. 
And that reignites that reminder that life is precious, life is fragile, and we get to live it. Yeah. You mentioned in your book about how how travel has been so important in this sort of new version of your life that you really just wanted to explore and check out all 50 states. How has that been going for you? What else do you have on your list? Could you share a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's something beautiful about a quest. You know, you think about all the great movies that they're on a quest to fill in the blank. More than a to-do list, there's sort of the mentality that I did come away very clearly like, doctors, how many years do I have to live? You know, that was my one question. Like, I need to know. And they're like, we don't know. So make yeah. the most of what you get. And yeah. so I remember thinking very consciously, hey, kids, I don't know how long I'll be here, but I promise I will leave you with a lifetime of memories. And so every year we do our Delaney family adventure. We go someplace we've never been. We do things we've never done. You know, my kids are in 26, 24, and 21. We still go on the annual Delaney family adventure. And it's intentional to be together, make memories. Memories are made of magical moments. So we specifically yep. set out to make magical moments. Some of the quests, we're trying to see all 50 states. We've been on a quest moving our way through national parks so that you have something to know that you're making progress. And I think that would be another perspective I took away from all of this is that I believe progress is imperative to the human condition. Hmm. We need to feel like we're moving from you know A to Z. We're going from one to the next. Yeah. And when life gets stagnant, meaning and purpose start to slip away. Yeah. And a quest can help you feel like I'm making progress towards this. So on our 50 states, I think we're somewhere around 38. Some of us are in different points. It's been fun to watch my kids embrace this live life to the fullest mentality. They have done some crazy stuff. My son did a deal where they created an app, put in all these destinations in the world, and then sort of like a roulette wheel spun it. And <gasps> wherever it went, they got in the car and they turned oh. that for a road trip. And they've done that on an international basis, and they've done it on a road trip in in the United States. And each time they got to the new location, they would spin again, and it would tell them, now you're going (laughs) to this place. (laughs) I I love that. You know, sort of embrace the adventure. Oh, that's amazing. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite of the places that you visited in the last couple of years? There's always the one I haven't done. So what's coming next is always fascinating to me. Uh, but I think a place that was remarkable was Zion National Park. In yes. It's just a beautiful, different, gorgeous kind of place. It's hard to beat Hawaii. My wife and I have now made that an annual trip to either go to Kauai or Maui. This year we're going to Oahu actually, but just... Hey, find a place that you love and, you know, make it special and then find places you've never been and keep, keep going. You're listening to A Twist of Fate. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe to get alerted when new episodes are released. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Let's get back to it. Yes. Both of those places I visited last year, and I I totally agree. Those were probably my top two as well. So, so great. I wanted to ask maybe tagging on to what you said about, you know, trying to find the time and having to be really intentional about, you know, doing all these new adventures. We've been in a pandemic for two years. I'm curious, I guess maybe my first question would be what, what impact has that had? I I know you're immunocompromised. You might not be able to go out and do all the things that you might've been able to do two years ago. What impact has that had? And have you gotten creative with some of the things that you've chosen to do? And then second, has the pandemic 
sort of led to any additional perspective for you when it comes to, you know, life and death? Yeah, and the on the new front, it was clearly limiting in terms of travel. We did continue to go to national parks. They're outside, and that was a, a good reminder that even in the midst of it, you can find something. But one of the things I found is learning is one of those places, as I said, you know, progress is so important to people. And yeah. learning to me is the ultimate, like, I can't do it, and I learn, and then I can do it. So uh, during the pandemic and one of the practices I've made, I'm a musician, early days of dreaming of the rock and roll dreams, you know, <laughs> work out, but I still play music a lot, but I learned new musical instruments to keep that variety as the spice of life. So during the pandemic, I started playing a lot of saxophone. I started learning to play the bagpipes, and then I probably spent far more time on the guitar than you know I have in years. So music became a very clear way to sort of learn and, and try. The second is home improvement. I've been tearing <laughs> apart the place and doing things that no buddy should ever do. And I think there's something beautiful about seeing, again, something that's, you know, broken and run down and then fixing it or making it better, but having to learn along the way to do that. So renovation to me is a great metaphor for life. You can take an old house <laughs> and renovate it to be beautiful. And I think we can sometimes have our lives get a little bit run down and, you know, things are flaking off and we just feel a little bit like an old rundown house, but it can be renovated with intentionality. And I think the yeah. word that I latch onto is the importance of intentionality. It's so easy for us to let a day just sort of happen. And then mm -hmm. we go to bed and then the next day rinse and repeat. And I find that intentionality can mean adding variety by saying, I'm going to learn a new recipe. My wife started mm -hmm. making homemade bread during the pandemic. And I think she's, you know, there's like 15 different kinds of breads <laughs> she makes now. And I yeah. sit back as the chief tasting officer and <laughs> eat prolifically. But it's new recipes. It's learning new skills. You know, I remember I literally set out like today, I need to learn how to do a Rubik's Cube. Why? Just to keep my brain going. And then I'm yeah. writing my next book, which the pandemic obviously led itself very naturally to. You can still go in a room and start to do your research. And so I'm about 90% through writing my second book and all of those have been great, but learning, break the routine, try things, do things you've never done. And that can happen in a pandemic or not. Love it. You mentioned a book that you're writing right now. Can you share a little bit more? What's the topic? What are you hoping to cover? Anything that you can share at all about um, what that's going to look like? First book was called A Life Worth Living, and it is about finding more purpose in life. That wasn't the book I set out to write. You know, I spent 25 years in corporate world and I had the privilege of being behind the closed doors and how things really work. I kept trying to write a, you know, a book, career book and it kept going back to the life part is what I was focused on. So Life Worth yeah. Living ended up being the first book. The second book takes that theme. It's called Work Life. It is career advice. How do you maximize your career, comma, without sacrificing your personal life. How can I share all the stuff that, you know, can help people in their careers of how things happen behind closed doors, which isn't necessarily always known or great, but if people knew it, they could navigate their careers yeah. more effectively. But to do so in the context, back to the theme of the first book, without giving up the pursuit of life, the life you've imagined, a life of meaning, a life of purpose. So how do you blend a great life and a great career? That's what work life is about. I love that. 
that I I need this book. <laughs> I, I will be one of the first people that, that buys it. If you could share maybe one or two pieces of advice or headlines that you have from the book, like what what advice would you give for someone who is seeking that balance? And, you know, especially in the pandemic, I feel like one of the things that I've personally grappled with is I, I feel like time kind of feels very slippery in the pandemic. You know, everything kind of like meshes together. I've been working from home for most of the time. And so it really is hard to, to draw those lines and, and find those boundaries. So what advice would you give to listeners who are looking to create that balance for themselves? I would say it touches into the second book and first book, and it would be a situation that I wrote about in the first book that happened to Alfred Nobel, who's a businessman, chemist, entrepreneur, had you know, 200 plus patents, woke up one day, grabbed his newspaper, had the strange reality of reading his own obituary. And in it, it said, you know, yesterday, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death is dead. And he was mortified. Like, what do you, what do you mean? The merchant of death? What? This is my obituary? They had screwed up. His brother had died and they ran the wrong obituary. But Alfred was left with this sort of mortifying thought that the world sums up everything I've done as the merchant of death. Because he had done work with nitroglycerin, which became dynamite, which became the earliest of weapons of mass destruction. But he had that epiphany that, wow, this is not the legacy I want to leave behind. And the good news is, because he had read that obituary that he did not like, he changed it. He set out to change his legacy. He took 94% Mm -hmm. of his vast wealth and chose to recognize the best in humanity. And now when you think about the name Nobel, it's about the Nobel Prizes, including the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. He changed his legacy. And I think that we all chase legacy in some degrees and work will take everything and more that we give it. In fact, yeah. it's insatiable. We, we give it more than it should. And so like Nobel, I think it's a really interesting perspective to come back and say, what's your legacy? What do you want it to be? And what is it if it were to end right now? And there's an author that I like named Donald Miller, and he has a a new book out called Hero on a Mission. And in it, he describes his process of sort of life, but he wrote his obituary of the person he wants to be, the obituary that he would like to be worth spoken at his funeral. Mm. And he reads it every day. And he (laughs) reads it to remind himself, this is the man I want to be. So live that way so that when you die, that's earned and warranted for people yeah. to say this about you. And I think that we would all be well served to somehow grapple with that perspective that we're making a legacy, whether we are intentional about it or not, we are leaving behind sort of the summation of life. And why not lean into that? And like Nobel set out to make it something specific and, you know, like Donald yeah. Moore, get a clear view of the end and work backwards. There's a practice in South Korea. They do living funerals. You go to your yeah. own funeral and they have a, you know, a service and you get into a casket and you think about the end of your life. But I think there's something wonderful about realizing, hey, you get a second chance go. And that's what I would say, you know, in the grand scheme of things, get that perspective. And in the context of the new book, a part of that is to realize work is only one piece of this giant bucket called life. And too many people put too much onto the, the work part and too little on the life part. And that balance is something that is, there's a lot of strategies to make sure that we don't get that backwards. Yeah. 
I remember reading about this this book around like the the regrets of the dying. I'm sure you've heard of that. A lot of the the top regrets is, you know, I wish I had spent less time working and more time with my loved ones. I wish I lived up to my my own expectations of myself versus living for others. And so there's a lot of that we need to think about when we when we try to kind of approach this mosaic of our life that has all these different pieces and where do we want to spend more of our time? How do we want to optimize for certain things? And so I'm super excited that you're writing this book. And I That's a great sure. visual. The mosaic of your life. I love that. Yeah. It goes into the mosaic and what is the, when you step back, what's the big picture you're making? Kind of pointillism on art. I want to make a good mosaic. Yes. Yes. I love it. Well, that's great. I would love to, you know, shift gears a little bit and start wrapping up here. I feel like you have so much wisdom and advice that's you know jam-packed into your first book and your and your second book. You've shared a lot of these insights with us today, which I'm super thankful for. But you know, if you could have one thing that listeners take away from from hearing about your experience, from hearing about all of the perspective that you have and what you're hoping to impart with people, what is the one thing that you would like them to take away? I think I had a misnomer early on that purpose was, you know, what's my purpose in life? You know, you're waiting for that clouds to part in that one moment. And I realized that we had it backwards. We, we yeah. don't have a purpose in life. We have many. And as soon as I made that shift, I realized I could have purpose as a dad. I have purpose as a neighbor. I have purpose as a boss. I had purpose as a coach. And that got me off the sidelines. Because I was wondering what my purpose in life was, I sat on the sidelines waiting for clarity, which meant I wasn't doing. And the minute I came to embrace, hey, I can have multiple purposes. And in fact, purpose can be found in a moment. Purpose can be found by enabling other people to pursue their purpose. Purpose can be personal. Purpose can be unexpected. And that's where I went with the first book is that realization that, hey, you know what? We can find purpose in ton of different ways. And that's great news for us because what we all want in life is to live a life with more meaning and purpose. And I realized it was far more accessible than I had ever realized before. That's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. I was looking forward to this conversation all week and just thinking about it and and just getting really pumped up about all the amazing insights that I knew you were going to share and rereading some of the pages of your book, you know, sort of reignited some of that energy and zest in me. I, f- I feel like after putting down the book, I was like, okay, I need to book a trip. <laughs> I need to, you know, do something that I haven't done. I Maybe I'll do like a pottery class or something. I don't know. And so I really, that this is a, a special gift that I feel like you have is, is being able to invigorate that in others. And so I'd like to thank you for making the time to do that today with me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love the zest you go after life. Going after learning the podcast, your van trip that you did last year. Keep it up. You are crafting a great life. And I think it was Annie Dillard who said, as we spend our days, so is our life. Make sure your days are leading to the life you want. And I think you're doing a great job. Okay. Thanks so much, Kevin. You're welcome. You're listening to A Twist of Fate. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.